0: And I'm an Ethiopian adoptee. And I'm Pascal, a filmmaker. You're listening to Out of the Fog on CKUT 90.3 FM.
1: In this episode, we wanted to look at what drives people to adopt. We spoke with Dan and Elaine, a married couple who adopted.
2: In some ways, you know, I I think I felt what I felt was flawed.
1: This is Dan. He was diagnosed with infertility.
2: Uh, I didn't necessarily, I don't think I I grasped it on a male level, like I'm not a man, but I did feel flawed. And I felt cosmically uh, hoodwinked in that here I had wanted a child more than anything. And I had, you know, had spent a long time kind of, you know, dating and looking at relationships and then uh you know, I find Elaine and after all this work, I mean, you know, and, and some work on myself psychologically you know, in terms of, you know, getting to the point where I was gonna be a better partner in a relationship and then to find out that well I couldn't have a child. Uh just felt like God and I'm not religious, so I I mean God in the sense of, you know, the universe's cosmic joke on me. And I was bitterly angry and Hurt and wounded.
1: When you learned about your infertility, how did that make you feel?
2: Uh, it, it literally left me in a depression. I uh, had, was uh, went on anti uh, depressants. You know, I was not in a place where I, I could bring my kind of you know sense of resilience to this issue. And so, you know, that was one part of dealing with that. But a lot of it was just us being in couples counseling together and working through this.
1: Were people around you, your friends, your family, were they aware um, and also sensitive about the mental condition infertility had left you in?
2: There would be times when people would make offhand comments about fertility or, or you know, uh, like I had a, a friend of mine who had mentioned, we were talking over, a bunch of us over dinner at a restaurant about how he would like uh, they tried to have a kid for the first time, and and uh, he got pregnant right away, and he goes, "My boys can swim," and I was, you know, sitting there going, "Well, you know, mine don't," and I don't really appreciate hearing that, you know. Uh, so uh, yeah, there was a. I mean, I I definitely had a lot of soul searching about what this meant for me. Uh, again, not not so much on the masculine level, but in terms of. Well then who am I if I've wanted to be a father and this is what has been a, a driving purpose in my life and I'm and that's not what's happening. Wow. What is that about? So, yeah, it was uh, it was it was not it was not a happy time. The love of my life
1: pushed me down the valley. Disappeared and never showed up again. For Dan, having biological children was part of his reason for getting married, but with his diagnosis, he immediately started fertility treatment
2: you know basically I had a, a very low sperm count and and uh, low motility and and uh, you know and depending on which doctor I went to and you know some of them were sort of you know scientific about it and some were almost almost clinically dismissive uh, and so it was uh, it was really. Uh, Gut wrenching for me that what had really been such an important part of my kind of process of wanting to get married was to have a family and to feel like I wasn't going to be able to have that. It left me, I don't know, really searching for some some way of kind of making it seem okay. And uh, we did go down the path of trying uh, infertility treatments, and you know, we actually we'd have to go through the process of of retrievals and, and, uh, uh, the, uh, having the sperm. I mean, it was just all this scientific stuff that has tremendous amounts of cost and, uh, just it's, it's uh, wrenching physically. It's, it was wrenching emotionally. You had to give Elaine shots every night. Uh, and you know, and then when we weren't able to get pregnant, it was just devastating.
1: The treatments failed, costs were adding up, the relationship strained. So Elaine and Dan joined a support group. Elaine describes how men had a hard time articulating their feelings of loss.
3: We were in an infertility support group for a while with a bunch of couples. So it was, it was, um, I think it turned out all the couples in that group were, um, heterosexual couples, right? So, um, and... So there were, you know, equal number of men and women. But, I mean, the men would literally come to this group that met weekly and say nothing. And I I don't know if in every case was – I don't know. I can't remember, you know, if there were male infertility issues amongst any of them. But – um but, you know, ultimately you're going through it as a couple, and they would say nothing, you know. <laughs> and, you know, Dan would speak, but, like, after a while it becomes uncomfortable if you're the only man, you know, who's speaking up. Um, and and no other man can say – can't even express anything in an, using emotional terminology at all, right? Like anything that the men would say would all be about logistics and the stress of, you know, the schedules and – it was never on an emotional level. It was just really strikingly odd to us. Because um, it was clear everybody was going through pain in that group. There was a lot of people in that group who had been through a lot more than we had um, for a lot longer. And um, just, you know, we weren't hearing that from some of the men.
1: And So they were kind of, do you think you, they were burying it, those feelings?
3: I don't know what they were doing with it. I guess so I mean I think that maybe some of them it might have been I don't know because I never literally saw them do the opposite but I could imagine with a couple of them just from kind of getting to know them over time that maybe if they did open up and start talking about things on an emotional level they might feel like they'd be overwhelmed by the feelings that might come up and so you know like maybe a few of them just weren't used to talking on an emotional level at all. And so to do it in a group and, you know, maybe that just felt hard to them. They didn't have a lot of practice, I guess. Um, I think a couple of them, uh, that wouldn't have been what they would be afraid of. I think it was more just, you know, their, their desire to speak would always be about wanting to talk about how frustrating or stressful or angry they were feeling. They would be comfortable talking about those emotions, I suppose. (laughs) But just not any vulnerable feelings of hurt or loss or confusion or sadness, you know.
1: Like many men in his support group, Dan felt helpless. At that point, there was only one solution left.
2: It was really, really hard on Elaine, and it got to the point where I realized, you know, that I can't ask her to go through this again. Uh, And I do want to have a a child and a family, and the way that that's going to happen for us is through adoption.
0: Out of the Fog on CKUT 90.3 FM. Adoption is often seen as a viable option for family formation when fertility treatment fails. More specifically, it's also seen as a solution to overcoming a situation of loss. Infertile individuals are not the only ones who live with loss. Adoptees and their parents do too. Pascal, you've interviewed mothers and fathers who've had to surrender their children to adoption. Can you tell us a bit about this?
1: Yes, absolutely, I did. So I did a project on uh, interviewing mothers from the forced adoption era. So the forced adoption era in Australia was that before the 1970s, um, women who were pregnant and unmarried were systematically placed into homes and had to give their children away for adoption. Um, so they re- literally were cornered into, uh, taking that, that difficult choice. Um, and for some it's a choice and for them, they thought it was a choice, but, um, with retrospect, uh, we believe now and understand that it was, um, not a choice. And, um, so basically, um, I interviewed these uh, many mothers, uh, from that era and still today they feel the loss, the grief, disempowerment uh, and, um, every day of the child's birthday, they would mourn, they would cry, they would hide in their homes. Um, they wouldn't want to talk with other people. They would remember that child that was removed from them. Most of them had internalized those feelings. Most of them thought it was their choice of giving up their child they still feel the stigmatization they had before the 1970s and they feel guilt for um, having a child before being married and also the guilt of uh, having to let go of that child. And for fathers, it, it, it is kind of similar because they were excluded from the lives of their children and they were deprived from the dignity of um, having the recognition on their uh, children's birth record.
0: And what about adoptees, and 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 the loss? Did they feel lost too?
1: Yeah. Um, so I did also interview many adoptees. Uh, most of them were politically uh, active on the question of adoption, and uh, they did report that they there was some struggle with identity and certainty and loss, and um, they there was and there is still persistent tension between. Uh, the loyalty to one family and the yearning for another um, many of them grew up believing that their mother had rejected them and um, they were denied the opportunity to grow up with their family and their com- community of origin and to reconnect with with their past. The adoptees who are political mostly they understand that um, that the situation where they were surrendered to adoption was preventable. So they do feel that um, we could have not separated them from their families and they wouldn't have grown up with that feeling of emptiness. I've met a lot of adoptees that told me that they grew up with this void inside of them. And they would describe this, this feeling of, of never knowing. How, do, how would you say, Kasai? How would you describe... That feeling? Do you feel that feeling?
0: Emptiness.
1: Emptiness? Yeah.
0: It's kind of like a room in your house that you haven't, you've never gotten to explore. And when you're talking, it just came to me when we talk about loss, whether it's the parents or adoptees, it seems like the losses are irreversible. Mm. You know, you, if, would, if, you you can't you can't gain what you lost.
1: Absolutely, yeah. That's That's, it's a good point. I I, I did meet uh, mothers and adoptees who have reunited, and th- the loss is still there. Those years that they were separated, they can't be gained again. So the loss of adoptees is not really acknowledged as a loss because we're too focused in thinking that adoptees are being saved, and. Um, kind of um celebrating the new family of the child but we're not really acknowledging the reasons why the child was in the first place placed in adoption and how it could have been prevented so that makes the loss of adoptees kind of inexistent and it's being denied because we think that they should be lucky and that denial is another layer of um, oppression.
0: And do you think people who cannot conceive children of their own, um, should they adopt? What's your opinion on, on infertility <sighs> I mean, and adoption?
1: Yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard one because I myself will never ha- be able to have a child. I'm gay. I'm coming out of the closet, guys, <laughs> but I'm gay. So, um, so it's a question I've always asked myself and um, just the fact that I'm I'm asking, it's funny, because the, the, I can ask myself, am I going to have a child or not through adoption? But that comes from a place of privilege. Uh, I live in Canada. I'm wealthy, let's say. And um, I'm able to ask myself, can I have a child or not? I can decide that. But put, put me in a, another country if I, I'm a Vietnamese person. So if I was in Vietnam, would I be able to ask that question? Like... Can do I want to have it of someone else's child? The answer would be no. I can't. I have to deal with my loss, and um, and today I'm thinking about that. How can I deal with my loss from the perspective of not having all that privilege? Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's it's a hard question to you know to to talk about with other of my peers who also are queer, and who may not have children be, or be able to have children by by biological means um but it really comes down to a question of privilege who has the right to have children and who and who doesn't
0: i think it's such a a big issue and and I, it is very much about privilege and it also you know goes back to what you're saying about loss how how do how do people who are infertile deal with their loss how do as a society how do we deal with loss because often we want to, you know, get rid of it. We want to fix it. We want to buy something. That's what we do in many ways. But there's some, you know, losses that, you know, maybe we, we need to find tools uh, to be able to manage, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've noticed, I've noticed how in our societies we have rituals for, um, for death. So we have, you know... Funerals and that helps us to overcome the dead. But with infertility, it's kind of like an ambiguous death. We're not sure. It's kind of it's the death of an idea, that of a child that was never born. Nowadays, because we have control over birth uh, through means of contraceptives and abortion, uh, we also believe that we have the control of having children when we can't. But infertility is a physical barrier. And instead of acknowledging that barrier, we try to surpass that um, through uh, money and power. So the real question is, who has the power and the right to have children, and who doesn't? And are we trying to repair the system of injustice that we're living right now? Are we promoting the rights of the people who can't take care of their own children. So obviously this is an open question for uh, society to to think about. So whether it is for vitro fertilization or adoption or surrogacy, what we really need to be thinking about is what are the social implications?
0: overcome the feelings of loss lived through infertility. So we spoke with Katie. She's an actor who was adopted from South Korea.
4: Um, Well, so when we first realized, I guess, that we weren't getting pregnant the natural way, uh, we went to fertility doctors. I I remember the, the doctor sitting us down and explaining the journey or whatever that is, that fertility journey, quote unquote, that we were about to go on, right? And again, in some ways it's really interesting, now that I think about it, it it kind of was also framed within this monetary framework, you know, within this transactional uh system, if that makes sense. And so she the the doctor, the woman sat down and said, you know, um and drew out a staircase on a piece of paper and said, you know, here you are at this bottom step in the process and, you know, you're you're going to go through some things and, and you have to make a decision. Are you going to go up to the next step? So would
0: you say that the medical establishment lacked empathy towards your feelings of loss?
4: Yeah, definitely. I, I think that that's fair, that, um, you know, the, the in some ways the reason that we eventually abandoned the fertility journey or whatever that was, or the staircase was, you know, it becomes so clinical and it becomes so pressurized, you know, you're, you're putting so much pressure on yourself and your partner and it, it reduces this, this human relationship that you have with this other person and this process, you know, of, of becoming a parent that, that ideally should be just natural and born out of love or whatever, you know, and it makes it um, very cold and deliberate and you have to, you know, measure it out and take temperatures and, and go through all these tests and, and, and it just... It's, it started to just put too much pressure on our relationship. And I think that at a certain point, we just like decided, you know what, I don't want to keep going down this route because it's making us crazy. It's making us focus on the wrong things in our lives. And frankly, you know, it's taking the joy out of sex for us too, and out of our own relationship. And so I think that's part of the reason that we decided, you know what, this isn't for us. We're just going to go, you know, we're just going to let whatever happens happen, basically
0: like dan and elaine katie and her husband's relationship was strained so they
4: turned to adoption and so we attended a general information session at one of these agencies and so we were in this room with um you know I don't know, like 20 or 30 other uh, prospective adoptive parents. And I remember uh, distinctly the person from the agency coming out and talking to us in in this really interesting way that that posed adoption as uh, economic transaction. And she even used the word consumers. And she, she said something along the lines of, you are all good consumers and we want to make sure that you have and, you know, enough information to make an informed choice. And I remember even being very struck by her kind of like a menu is what it looked like of you know, the different countries that were sending countries for international adoption around the world. Um, so you had all these requirements in this menu next to the different countries that were sending children. And then it had basically the prices putting it in that framework uh, just, you know, sealed the deal for me. I just decided I didn't want to go through with it. Katie
0: was suddenly confronted with the reality that adoption, like infertility treatments, is a commercial service to form families where children are the product. She was also facing the daily pressures of having children. She was once part of the artistic community in Minnesota where it was not uncommon to have children. But when she moved to Arizona three years ago, she started getting these questions.
4: And so, when people meet you, the first question they always ask, you know, is, "Are you married?" And the second question is, "You got kids?" And I feel like it's it's like a way of um, assigning some kind of a either a value. Maybe that's kind of a, a harsh way of thinking about it. In some ways, it's more like evaluating you or trying to place you somehow in their in their realm of understanding, I guess. And because it's so hard, I mean, it's it's just it's first of all, it's an easy way to. Former relationship with someone, especially if they have children themselves. It's, a, it's an easy way for them to find some way of knowing you and connecting with you. But then in some ways also um, it's, it suggests this, this very limited way of knowing someone, you know and it suggests in some ways um, a lack of, of really, I think understanding different ways of being a woman and different different ways of finding value in women in our culture, which is unfortunate. So, yeah, I don't, again, I don't think that anyone's ever implicitly said, oh, you know, I can't believe you don't have kids. I mean, no one would, be, would say that directly. But I think there's definitely that implied sense of, of like, what what are you exactly? You know, like, what, what do you do if you don't have kids, kind of? Some people really feel
0: incomplete if they don't have children. Um, and they really suffer from it. I'm wondering what would you tell them um, what words would you leave them to help them cope with uh, with, the, with the impossibility of having children
4: um, well, i kids don't necessarily complete a person either you know like just like another individual, like a long term relationship or, or, or a partner that doesn't necessarily complete you, you know you can't rely on another person to to fill you and in some ways to fill in the, the holes that you might feel in your own life you know and you have to find that for yourself and in, in some ways you have to you have to figure out how to fill in your own holes and children are not necessarily going to do that for you in the same way that another person a partner is not going to necessarily do that for you and so i do understand that that i that thought that like if i just had a child it would definitely it would give me something to focus on. It would give me meaning. I wouldn't have to necessarily question why I'm here. But, again, you know, when those kids grow up and those kids go away and they become, you know, uh, young adults themselves um, and they go off and live their lives, you'll still have that same question. You know, what is what is me, What is me? giving my life meaning and what was I sent here to do? So you might as well try to figure that out for yourself, I guess. By asking
0: herself these big questions, Katie was able to move away from her attachment to forming a family and started to evaluate her sense of purpose in the world.
4: I mean, I think in some ways it's a daily journey for all of us. Um, For a long time, when I was an artist, that was my, my meaning. That was the thing that drove me, was making art. And I would go from project to project, and I was trying the best I could to grapple with certain things I saw in the world and things in my life through making art. And I was lucky enough to have had a, a, a good enough response to my work, at least in my community. And certainly, you know, to some extent, um, you know, a little bit regionally or nationally, if I had enough um, success, I guess, that I felt like, you know, this is my meaning, this is my purpose. Um, and I was really lucky to have that. And I think that, though, when we moved here to Phoenix, um, it was almost like this whole starting over process for me because there isn't necessarily as many artistic opportunities here in Phoenix. And in some ways, I was kind of ready to um, to let art go for a little while and or maybe not to make it the primary focus. And so that was a big that was a big journey for me, I gotta say, to be honest, you know, um to try to rediscover like what is it that I'm supposed to do. But I think for me, it goes back to making, just wanting to make a difference, wanting to do something that positively impacts the world, and that's what led me to working um, in nonprofits again and you know, working in a domestic violence agency, for example, here in Phoenix, um, that sense of at least trying to contribute in some small way to the world. So throughout in community work, you're, you're actually leaving a legacy to the world. I th- well and I think that, that um that word legacy is really important and really interesting that you brought up too because in some ways, you know, it's for someone who has children, right, that's the children are their legacy and the children are their creativity, right? But for artists and for or for anybody, you know, you have to find out what is your creativity, what is that that legacy if you're not leaving um necessarily your dna so to speak right to the world that there's something else that you're creating even if you're not an artist that you are feeling like you are birthing into the world to leave some kind of trace like what you're saying behind
1: this is it for this month you're listening to pascal and kasai and this was out of the fog on ckut 90.3 90.3 FM in Montreal.
0: If you want to listen to our previous episodes, you can visit our website at outofthefog.news. Thanks for listening.
3: The rebels have
0: that day. The government
1: you still say is you.